chapters 2 and 3 are specific letters to each of the churches. Now, I want to say some things about them in general before we look at them specifically. Um, There is a distinct pattern in these letters. And you'll see that almost immediately. And he starts to the angel of the church. He starts with a statement about himself. Jesus does. These are Jesus' letters. So he describes himself in some way. He commends the church for the good things and condemns them for the bad things and corrects them. He has he who has an ear, let him hear. And he has the challenge to the one who overcomes. Now there's some variations on that basic pattern. There are a couple of churches that don't have anything wrong with them. There's one church that doesn't seem to have anything right with it. Um, that order of those last two, uh, he who has an ear and to him who overcomes, is reversed in uh, letters 4 through 7. But essentially you've got the same pattern in each of the letters. Now, what you're going to see is that each of the letters deals with the specific situation of those churches that Jesus knows. And they're not the same. That might be an argument for the fact that in the first century, the churches were independent. And the problems one church has, even the false teachings one church has, aren't necessarily shared by the other churches. There was no denominational hierarchy that united these churches together. Uh, Another thing you might notice, we'll mention this a few times, but we won't mention it every time. But when he describes himself at the beginning of each of the letters, the description he has will fit with the message of the letter. Look for that. And the promise to the overcomer will often fit with the message of the letter. These aren't just random things. You can see the coherence of each of the letters to the churches. Um, And those promises to the overcomers, by the way, the idea of there being overcomers implies there's conflict. We'll certainly see that later on in the book. But many of the promises to the overcomers are fulfilled in chapters 20 to 22. So the book really ties itself together nicely. Um, I won't probably say hardly anything about this, but I do think there's some validity to this, and you can get this out of a lot of commentaries. A lot of the churches, when you read what Jesus says to them, seem to have taken on a lot of the characteristics of the cities they were in. Some of the problems of the churches seem to almost parallel the nature of the cities. Uh, So that's an interesting feature. Um, there is, I think, to some extent, a pattern in these seven churches. Now, if you look at them on a map, they're almost kind of like a jagged circle, like the order that maybe a messenger would have taken the letters. But there's also kind of a pattern to them. The first and the last churches are pretty much in danger of losing their identity as a church, as a light bearer for the Lord. The second and the sixth ones are the ones that nothing bad was about. Three through five, there was some good stuff and some bad stuff. So there seems to be kind of a symmetry in that. One more thing before I get into the letters, uh, but this might be the most important thing that I'll say. You know, when we're reading through books like this, one of the questions I have is, why? Why are these things in here? And, And, you know, the letters to the churches, when you start reading the book, it's like... Well, most of the rest of the book is, as we've said, visual. It's John seeing all these symbols. And these letters to the churches seem to be kind of like, kind of out of the, the nature of the rest of the book. They seem to kind of almost be an interruption in the rest of the book. 
And so I want to say a word about that. I really think that when you see something that stands out, and that seems a little out of place in a book, that's probably a key to understanding it. You know, if you can figure out why it's there, you'll probably understand a whole lot more about the book. Here's what I think. I think, well, obviously, Revelation was written to these churches. Maybe it was written to these churches a little bit more than what we realize. He describes the situation of each of the churches. The rest of the book relates to the situations of these churches. Let me suggest something. I've not done this yet. I've thought about it as I've gone through in several different connections. But but do this sometime. I, I intend to one of these days. Take each one of these churches. And read Revelation like you were a member of that church. Read Revelation like you were a member of a church that had left its first love. Read Revelation as a member of a church that was poor and persecuted. Read Revelation as a member of a church that was was compromising with false doctrines promoting idolatry and immorality. And so forth and so on. What I'm seeing as I'm even thinking about that going through is, wow. You see so much in the book that that relates so directly to the situation of each of those churches. So I really think these churches are kind of the background that we need to understand the rest of the book. There's a reason why he presents things the way he does in the rest of the book. It's because that's what these churches and these situations needed. And to me, somebody pointed that out to me a while back. And as I've continued looking at the book, thinking about that, more and more is jumping out at me as, wow, you know, I can see how that relates so much to this church or to that church or to another church in that. And so I really think there's probably just a lot of tie-ins. And these letters are kind of the background for him writing what he does. Comments and questions before we actually look at the letters. Somebody make a point one time that obviously we do we do need to how I read the book primarily with understanding that the book's going to address the needs of these seven churches. But this individual is making the point that the fact that he writes to seven churches may the seven having kind of a complete number a complete uh, tone to it that uh, on a secondary level he's writing to everyone that this has an applicability for all churches although he is addressing the I agree. Yes, absolutely. Seven churches, complete number, and I think these represent all churches. I think what we're going to see is, when we actually look at these things is, wow, we can relate, probably to more than one. And, uh, you know, we can see how these things have recurred in churches we know. So I think that's a good point. Alright, other thoughts or comments before we actually look at these letters? Do you think these are, when Jesus is giving these things that these churches need to work on, that it's quite possible he said these things, because if they wouldn't fix those things that they were having issues with, they would not make it through what laid before them? Yes. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) they won't make it with the Lord at any rate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, and he's also giving encouragement. I mean, it's not all 
you know, they're not all bad. And so some of what he's saying in the book is trying to encourage and build up the churches that were suffering things, but were really hanging in there and doing well. So, Other things by introduction to chapters 2 and 3. Okay, let's look at these. Chapter 2, would somebody read 1 to 7? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who, talk, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your, to- and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put those to the test who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my, for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will grant to each of the I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Jesus' position, you know, holding the stars in his hand and walking among the lampstands gives him absolute knowledge of the situation of each of the churches. And uh, he's in a position then to unquestionably diagnose their situation. And he is well able to remove the lampstand if uh, occasion calls for it. So he, he, he says, I know. Now he knows a lot of good things about this church. What are some of the best things you see in the Ephesus church? No tolerance for evil. Yeah. Well, do you think it's good that they're intolerant? Yeah. <laughs> It is, although in our society that's considered to be the uh, you know cardinal sin. Um, if we don't hate wickedness, we don't love righteousness. We must be intolerant of things that are against the Lord. And uh, we must put to the test those who claim to be apostles or other workers for the Lord. And if they're not, we must expose them. So that's a good thing, that they were intolerant. What else was good about this Ephesian church? Patient. Yes. Patient in the sense that they were persevering. They'd gone through a lot. Hadn't given up. What else is good about them? Yeah, they worked hard. This is a hard-working church. They toiled. They, they kept going, and they were, they were sound. They were straight doctrinally. When you read some of that, it's hard to imagine there could be anything wrong with a church this good. But there was something very seriously wrong with this church. What was that? Their first love. They'd left their first love. That seems impossible. I mean, is it possible that a church could do all of these things and have left its first love? What is its first love, by the way? Yes. Yes. It can be sort of mechanical. 
and not done out of love. There's various reasons to work. You can work just because it's your tradition. It's just because it's your background. It's what your parents did. You can work because you want the institution to be built up. And, uh, and not because you really love God. If you think about it a second, we know a lot about the church at Ephesus. More than we know about most churches. You go, you go back and we can kind of trace a history of the Ephesian church. I mean, we first know about brethren being in Ephesus. When? Acts 19. Acts, which? 19. Even before. A little before. Acts, the end of 18. Who stopped at Ephesus at the end of 18? Apollos. Apollos was there. Aquila and Priscilla stayed there. Paul stopped by, dropped off Aquila and Priscilla. They taught Apollos. Paul came back on his third journey, spent three years there. So chapter 19 is all about Ephesus. Then in chapter 20, Paul did what? Talked to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And then we have two books in the New Testament that are primarily written to Ephesus. Yeah, I don't, Second Timothy perhaps, First Timothy for sure, and Ephesians. Yeah, so Ephesians, and then First Timothy, maybe Second Timothy, but probably not to as great an extent anyway. First Timothy, I think, is really intended as much for the Ephesians as it was for Timothy himself. Um, and and you can trace, you know, things in the in this church. It started out good. The church of Ephesus was a fine group. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've gone through many, many steps, many stages. And who is most likely to turn serving God into something mechanical and not out of love? I say the kids of Christians who grow up doing what they do because we've always done it and not really doing it out of their personal love and commitment and faith. That's not, doesn't have to be that way. But it sometimes is. And they sometimes will be very straight doctrinally, we don't do this, our church doesn't, doesn't believe in this, you know, and things like that. Mom and dad would never have let us do that. But it becomes just, it's what we do. It's not because we love God. So that's, you know, there's some things to, uh, to think about. As far as, you know, leaving your first love. They were about to lose their status. He, if you don't love God, you're not bearing any light from the Lord. He was going to just take the candlestick away, the lampstand away. So, I mean, this lacking love, you don't serve God. Thoughts and comments on the, the letter to the church of Ephesus? It's really interesting because if you have put yourself in the position of yeah, either the church, a member of the church there, or even someone close to a member of the church there, quite possible they would have saw this as, oh, they're just fine. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's that way with a few of these letters. But, you know, the one who has the eyes like the flames of fire knows better. Yeah, he doesn't see it the same way we do, does he? Other thoughts? Yes. Uh, I think Ephesus is on the road to Pharisee, is that's really what's wrong with the Pharisees. 
I agree. Look at the next one. 8 to 11. Did anybody pick up on the theme of this letter? Mentioned quite a bit in verse 8 and verse 10 and verse 11. It's a letter about two opposites. Life and death, yeah. And and you just see how how interconnected these things are. Uh, What's the situation of this church? It's good. There's nothing bad said about it, um, sort of. Nothing bad said about their character, but wow. What's going on with them? Tribulation of poverty. Yeah, they're having a rough time. They're being persecuted by uh, so-called Jews, probably ethnic Jews that are no longer God's true people, the Christians are. So they're being persecuted. They're they're in poverty. You know, it's, it's really hard for them. They're suffering a lot. Does God intend for his children to suffer in this world? Yes. You know, this is not as common here, maybe, but in Brazil, it is amazing the prevalence of the health and wealth gospels. And one of the the prominent Brazilian churches, their slogan is, Pare de Sofrer, Stop Suffering. Now, they don't mean by that, stop suffering the dominion of sin and slavery to Satan. They they mean, stop suffering sickness, stop suffering financial setbacks, you know, and things like that. Well, God didn't promise that we weren't going to have a hard time financially, physically, in, in this life. That's not what the Lord said. Here's a good church as far as we can see. Nothing bad said about it and a lot of good promises given to them. But they're having a hard time. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Now he says some things that would help them not fear what they're about to suffer. First of all, it's only for ten days. I think that's a symbolic period, but still, it's ten days. You know, And it's, it's testing you. It's, it's strengthening you. It's helping you. And what is there at the end if they're faithful? Yeah, be faithful to death. He'll give you a crown of life. He's the one who was dead and came to life. You stick it out, die if you need to. He'll bless you with life, and you won't be overcome. You won't be hurt by the second death. You know, he'll give you the life that matters. It doesn't make any difference whether we live or die here. We are way too focused on. Figuring out ways of making sure, A, that we live as long as possible, and B, that we enjoy it as much as we can while we're living. 
It doesn't matter. This isn't life. You know, I, I remember hearing a long time ago, I think this was said to uh, old brother uh, Gardner Hall uh, when he was quite old and somebody went and visited him and said, well, I see you're still in the land of the living. He said, no, as a matter of fact, I'm in the land of the dying, but I'm going to the land of the living. Isn't that the truth? You know, I mean, we're going to die, you know, one way or the other in this life anyway, unless Jesus returns first. We're not going to get out of this world alive. You know, we're too concerned about self-preservation. You know, he's saying, don't worry about it. You're going to be in prison for ten days. You may die. They may kill you. Forget it. He'll give you a crown of life. He knows what it's like to go through death and live again. So, you know, he's just giving a lot of encouragement, even though they're having a really tough time physically. I just, we really have got to get a more spiritual perspective and be less focused on how cool we can make our lives here. Comments and thoughts? Who would you rather receive a crown from? The world or from the Lord? Amen. Yeah, you know, that's so right. We, we need to be spiritually focused because you said he's given a lot of encouragement. Normal people, you read this, this isn't very encouraging. <laughs> it is, you know, you're going to suffer, you're going to, you know, that's, but if you're spiritually minded, absolutely. We've got to look to the Lord and look to what we're really striving for. Yes. I think you mentioned earlier, but I think it's interesting that the particular person who's talking to him in this instance is the one who was dead and came to life. And if you go back to chapter 1 and see how he is now in verse 14, 15, and 16, you see someone who the world saw was just a dead man, but now who suffered wrongfully got on the cross and now we're here. Amen. You see in verse 10 who it is that's truly fighting against these saints. Yes. The devil. Absolutely. We are in a cosmic uh, battle. Anything else? Rick. At the same time, I mean, when you look at this, when you think about trials when you think about tribulations if you have the wrong perspective on it, you're going to be afraid of it I mean there's not a person in this room that wants to sit there and suffer some of the things these guys are talking about but by keeping your focus on God it takes the fear out of it it's like okay do your worst that's basically what you're getting at here it's like it really doesn't matter what they throw at you here on this earth because at the end of the day you're serving God you're going to be rewarded in heaven Read 2 Corinthians 11 sometime and see what Paul went through. We're worried somebody's going to laugh at us. You said Satan is doing it, the devil is doing it, but the purpose that you may be tested just reminds us again of, in the case of Job, God was in control and God understood whatever tribulation they were going through by God's allowance. It was for God's purpose. God's pretty amazing when he manages to use what Satan does to contribute to his purposes and his glory. You know, he takes a messenger of Satan and uses it to keep Paul from exalting himself in that thorn in the flesh. Or he uses the brothers selling Joseph into Egypt 
to preserve the whole uh, family alive, etc. Uh, you know, <laughs> the devil's got to get frustrated sometimes with how much things backfire every time he tries to do something. Good point. We'll see that a lot in this book, too. It's a good bit uh, in some parts about Satan. And, you know, if it weren't for the fact he was so evil, you'd almost feel sorry for him by the time you get done with this thing. You know, God outsmarts him every step. Matt? Um, when I was in school, I had to, I had to read a, a philosopher, an early Christian philosopher, who, who basically said that evil doesn't exist. Now, I may have ultimately come to disagree with him, but his, his point was rooted in a good point that evil in the long run, in the end, is ultimately so insignificant compared with the power of God. The power of evil is so insignificant compared with the power of God as subservient to God, just as Satan is shown to be subservient. I think sometimes we forget that, that just it's not just going to be God squeaking out a victory in the end. It's going to be an overwhelming defeat for Satan. Yeah, we have to keep those things in balance. Sure. The Lord is in control. The Lord um, is sovereign, and the devil's nowhere close. And yet the devil is a real opponent that we need to fight against. And, you know, so I think, you know, there's some tension in that. But if we can keep, you know, both of those ideas alive and well within us, then I think it helps us. Okay, uh, 12 to 17. angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have come, who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Okay, um, if you look at verse 13, man, this church in Pergamum has been through a lot. They dwell where Satan's own throne is. Uh, so Satan is uh, in command in Pergamum. And they stuck it out. They hold fast his name, didn't deny his faith. There's even one of their brethren who'd been killed. For the cause of Christ, Antipas. I mean, you think about it. Would that have an impact? You know, what if I were able to come here tonight and and mention one of you guys to the rest of the group who you, you'd, you'd been killed because of your faith in the Christian? Just, just look around, you know. Whoa. That, I mean, that would really make it real. Who's going to be next? They've held fast. That's courage and commitment. But, ah, it's so, uh, you know, frustrating. There are some things wrong with this church. I have a few things against you. Because you have their son who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, I need to say a couple things about all this. I, I love to tell you the story of Balaam, but I assume you know it. If you don't really learn it, that's a cool story in Numbers 22 to 31, really. But, but here's the relevant part of that. Balak tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. <laughs> Balaam really wanted to be hired to curse the Israelites, and he tried everywhere in the world to do it. Uh, including having a really interesting conversation with his own donkey, uh, which is uh, kind of uh, humorous and makes several good points uh, as well. But God tells him all every step of the way, you know, you will not say anything other than what I put in your mouth. And that's exactly what happened. Every single time, Balaam, yearning for the presence that Balak was going to give him, tried to open his mouth to curse him. Out comes a blessing. <laughs> it's so frustrating when you can't control your mouth. You know, he's losing out on those, those, those you know, gifts. Four different times he tries to curse him, and every single time he pronounces a blessing on him. You know, from Balak's standpoint, he made bad matters worse. Well, this is not so well known, and you have to put several passages together to really see what happened. Numbers 25, Numbers 31, some New Testament references in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude and here. But, it, but I'm pretty sure that what happens from that is this. Balaam goes to plan B. He tells Balak, look, if you will send Moabite women into the camp of the Israelites to seduce them into immorality and idolatry, I'll curse. And that's what happens. He sent the Moabite women in. The Israelite men fell into immorality and idolatry with them. And I think he killed about 24,000 of them, if I remember correctly, in Numbers 25. God cursed them by Balaam, you know, encouraging, um, you know, putting a stumbling block before them. So Balaam becomes the prototype of corrupt teachers who betray servants of God into compromising with the world. Here were some teachers in Pergamum who what they taught were influencing the Christians to idolatry and immorality. False doctrine matters. Now, the church itself wasn't teaching this. They just had something. But he's, he's opposing the church. He had something against the church because they allowed some people to teach things that, that encouraged sin among God's people. You know, the, the, the idea of compromising with the world is one of Satan's most, most lethal weapons. And you get somebody, you know... You get a Christian who starts saying, you know, it doesn't really make any difference. It's okay. You can do this. You know, and trying to come up with some sort of justification. It's debilitating. You know, it's hard enough to fight the world when you know it's wrong. You get Christians coming up with some sort of rationalization that it's okay. 
Wow. And, and that's a really dangerous thing in Pergamum. Now, let me say a few things about that. Um, one is, this is, you know, this relates to the study of a lot of passages. But, eating things sacrificed to idols is condemned in the New Testament. Now, that's not well understood because we missed a couple points. But it's condemned here. It's condemned in the next letter. It's condemned in Acts 15 by that decree of the Jerusalem brethren. It's condemned in 1 Corinthians 10. He says you can't eat the table of the Lord and the table of idols at the same time. Now, the thing we've sometimes gotten confused over is, yes, if the meat had a history and then was wholesaled to the butcher shop and sold as ordinary meat, it's okay. But you don't call it meat sacrificed to idols if it's sold in the butcher shop as ordinary meat. To say it's meat sacrificed to idols implies you're eating it in connection with the idol feast. You can't do that. Now that was a temptation in the first century. Much of their social life occurred in the idol You go to a birthday party, you go to a, a retirement party, you go to whatever, it's going to be in the idol temple and you're going to worship, you're going to, there's going to be a meal dedicated to the idol. Now a Christian says, well, there's no such thing as an idol. I, I, I'm not going to worship an idol. God still condemns him for being a part of that idol worship service. And so that's what was going on here. Immorality is always an issue. That's a, such a temptation. Um, let, let me just throw out a couple of practical things. This is on my mind. Um, so I'll, I'll mention this. Uh, and then I, I want to mention a, a broader practical thing. You know... It is so important when a Christian comes to you for advice or a Christian talks to you about something that you help him do the right thing instead of sympathizing with him and doing the wrong thing. You know, they're struggling with something and you want them to be, to be happy so you give them support in doing something sinful. What's on my mind is just a conversation I had a few minutes ago with a young man who is struggling a lot with garbage on the internet. And, wow, you got to watch some things. This just illustrates this point. He, uh, he wisely chose to quit using his computer. He doesn't live at home, but he's still young. His mother found out about that, right about why. She asked him about it. He said, well, I just have a real, you know, it's a real temptation she said, oh, well, you, you need to be strong enough to handle that. You shouldn't, you, you shouldn't quit using your computer. You need to just, you know, be, you need to be strong. That would be the wrong thing to say. You know, plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand is not the wrong thing. You know, we, we don't think when we're talking to others. I'm sure she didn't intend to send her son to hell. But we wouldn't tell a drunk oh, go ahead and go to the bar. You can be strong enough to handle that. It's like, wow. So be careful when we're talking to each other that we don't say and do things that actually end up encouraging them to do their own thing. There is a lot of danger in being a stumbling block. And uh, we need fortification <laughs> to do the right thing. You know, if, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I don't know what, what it might be. You know, I, I, I 
I really need to tell this lie. If I don't tell this lie, I'm going to be in big trouble. Everybody's going to be in big trouble. You know, and I kind of justify this, or I could, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's not going to hurt anybody, you know, something like that. Well, now, what's going to happen if they go to a person in the world and ask about that? Well, the person in the world is going to say, oh, yeah, sure, tell the lie. You're the last hope. You tell them, well, yeah, I don't think it'll be too bad. They're gone. You've got to help them. Now, another broader practical issue, uh, and I don't tend to go here necessarily in this discussion, but something I think we do need to take seriously, and I suspect that most of you do, is that, you know, in, in, in real terms, a lot of brethren are encouraging people to be immoral, sexually immoral, by teaching things about divorce and remarriage that are sinful. And, you know, encouraging people to stay in relationships that are right. And I don't want to debate that issue at the moment. That's a whole other subject. But that is very important. It's important that we are very firm. We know what the Bible says, and we help people do the right thing. And, and that's kind of an institutionalized you know, issue with that. We were just talking about kind of some individual situations. But, you know, we can be, you know, a stumbling block to others by teaching or promoting in some way doctrines that give comfort to somebody who needs to be challenged to do the right thing. So that would be a practical issue as well that might relate to this. I mean, he's, he's really upset with the church and upset with these false teachers. You know, make war against them, the sword of his mouth, and if, they, if the church doesn't repent, he's going to come to them quickly. You know, and, and, and he's upset with them. So they really need to get rid of these false teachers who, that are encouraged, com, encouraging compromise uh, of the Christians there. Comments and questions? I have a question. Um, what do you know about this group called the Nicolaitans? Um, well, what I heard when I was growing up is that they were uh, those who were stingy givers. The nickel laitans. <laughs> we needed something there. Um, well, apparently, apparently the Nicolaitans are the group. <laughs> Laura took after her mother. I <laughs> um, you know, apparently, they are the ones that are teaching these false doctrines. This doctrine of Balaam, he's just calling it by trying to compare it to what Balaam did. But there's apparently this group called the Nicolaitans who are the ones who are saying it's okay to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to be sexually immoral. Yes? This passage, when it says, you know, it's not the church promoting the teaching, but they, they're aware of it. We've been, uh, the congregation I grew up in, the 70 AD theory came in, and it didn't even matter that that was the particular theory. And at first, when people in my family stood against it, they were told, that's none of your business. That's not being preached from the pulpit. That's what some people are talking about in homes. <laughs> it, it wasn't taught to you, so it's gossip and it's hearsay. And it's, you know, wow. people will use whatever tactics they can to get their agenda through. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, wow. Uh, and, and you've got passages in Galatians yeah. 2 and other things where, you know, Paul talks about some coming in sort of secretly introducing their heresies and so forth. It's more dangerous when something's not open. 
this. This just gives us, especially as a small, young church, a word of warning when other Christians want to join the church. There is reason to understand what doctrines they have. Because if they're about to come among us, this is a church being condemned for those among them holding those certain doctrines. So we need to we need to be real serious. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the truth is from the Lord. Satan is the father of error. And so we really need to teach and preach and make sure that what is taught is what God says. Now, this is not to encourage you know, some sort of witch hunt, but to encourage us to be strong in standing up for what's right and making sure that is what is being taught. You know, we may say, well, no, I don't well, but what, what's what's being taught? What's being promoted? What's being encouraged? You know, if, the, if, if something is wrong is being taught and promoted and encouraged, and I'm a part of the group, I, I shouldn't stand for it. You know, the group ought to take a stand and say, you can't do that. Yes. You know, I've mentioned this before, that type of attitude, not standing up for what's right, oh, it's okay, but that's exactly why we have gay marriage coming in left and right. It's because, even, you know, years ago, even the denominations, that's wrong. You don't do that. But over the years, you know, they're, they're, they're preachers or what priests, whatever. Well, it's not that we need to love them. They're in a committee. And now look where we are. You know, so even people of the world of, who had some element of truth don't even have that anymore. Well, you know, if, if we're not going to draw the line on the base of what God says, then eventually we'll accept that. I mean, either either we say what God's Word says about it, or just do whatever you want to. <laughs> That's pretty well where we've come to. You know, we've got to be willing to stand and, and teach what's right and insist on what's right, regardless of how popular or unpopular that may be. It really doesn't matter, you know, who, who, who likes it. Uh, we're not called upon to please the world, but to, to be a light. Yeah. Think, um, somewhat along those lines, if we think about repentance, you know, um, when Paul was addressing the Corinthian brethren uh, in 1 Corinthians, the things that, so many things that he rebuked them for, but primarily the, the man that had his father's wife. And then we go to 2 Corinthians... And he commends them because he said, you made yourself clear in this matter. If there's gray area, then it's not clear. You know, and that's how some of those false doctrines get introduced. If somebody wants to deal in fuzzy language and they don't want to be clear. That's always very important that we speak like the Bible speaks. It's uh, harder to teach things that are false using biblical language. <laughs> But when we get away from that, it's easier to twist things and distort them. Good point. Well, from the perspective of repentance, you know, if I have something wrong in my life, I need to make it clear to the church when I've made it right. You know, the church that I'm fellowshipping with needs to know where I am so that they can be in fellowship with me. So I don't need to leave any gray area in whether I'm clear on whether I'm with the Lord or not. We, 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 as Christians, we want to be transparent. And we want to, we want to shine our light. 
Matt, you're doing. I was just going to say this this letter kind of gives us an interesting perspective. Uh, I like what you were saying earlier that as we read through the rest of the book of Revelation, we see how the rest of the book is addressing the needs of these particular congregations. And this this letter in particular, and maybe some others later, show us that uh, the book of Revelation is not just the message of the churches are going to be victorious. It's also the message of the churches need to take heed, or they'll be the ones that are being defeated in the end of the letter. It's not just... The, the world and Satan who are in danger of suffering those terrible things described in the later part of the book. It's also the church. Churches like Pergamum, if they don't straighten up about these things where they're not drawing the line where God is. Um, they're the ones facing those same defeats. And you see that a lot later on in the book. You see a lot that shows how Satan is trying to use these things to draw Christians away from the Lord and condemn them. Yes? Going back to what you said earlier, I think when it comes to stumbling blocks, it's amazing how much we gain when we lose things, and we lose when we gain things. Like a lot of times, we might say, like, "Oh, my eye, it, it may be a stumbling block. But I don't want to pluck it out. I need it. It's like I'll be so much happier with it." But a lot of times, we have like a very limited perspective, and we don't really see, like, compare now to eternity. And it's amazing how much how much better we would be to lose some things and how terrifying it is if we were to keep some things and to lose out on eternity. Amen. Absolutely. Better to go into life, you know, maimed or blind than having all our uh, body parts intact, you know, be thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, you know, I understand Jesus wasn't talking about literally cutting off our arm or whatever. But I think he was talking about literally making serious sacrifices that are painful of whatever it is that's leading me astray. I don't care how hard it is or how attached I am. I'm much better off without anything that's going to cause me to go to hell. I think that I think that if I don't know, like your eye was causing you really bad problems and you had to do it. I mean, you have to do it, but like. At the same time, like... <laughs> It'd be painful, wouldn't it? Yeah, I know, but, like, still. I mean, you can go back into history and see Christians that did do that. Yeah, I don't think Jesus was saying that literally, but I think he is trying to say, make radical sacrifices of whatever you need to make sacrifices. Other thoughts or comments? Well, you've listened really well. I think probably this would be a good place to stop, but I appreciate a lot your attention and comments. Um, you know, we will uh, continue working uh, to do as much as we can, as well as we can figure out how to do it tomorrow. And uh, I'm excited about that. I appreciate all you being here. And just really good attention. I know we went a long time in one session, uh, but uh, you do well with that. Uh, I learned a while back in, in Brazil in one of the churches that you know I go to every time I go down there, they are they are crazy. Used to be they just put on the board these sessions. They were like from nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, and and most of the time studying. Few breaks here, there, and yonder. And it's like every once in a while I'd have to say, man, this is a little more than I can do. And but they could, man, they'd sit there and they'd take notes and they'd be eager. And I realized. People can really uh, concentrate if they really want to. So uh, I appreciate you doing that. It's very encouraging. And uh, 